0: Let's pray. Heavenly Father, teach us a childlike faith in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, it would be so easy to make today's gospel lesson about children being the most important thing in the universe, um, gouging out your eyes and cutting off your hand and foot and losing sheep and using a millstone as a really bad anchor. Have you ever seen a sermon with so many tangents? Okay, don't answer that because mine are like that all the time. The hardest part of any sermon is figuring out what Jesus is trying to say putting that into something that aligns with the way we see things today. In other words, words, phrases, and examples that make sense to us because you know, it's 2,000 years of time difference, but keeping it completely and totally centered in the teaching of the Bible. You can't figure out what one verse is saying unless you put it into context with the rest of the Bible. <sighs> Sermons should not be moral diatribes or feel-good story times. To believe in a God who is not only interested in our daily life, but our eternal life, is to see the Bible as a living, breathing love letter. And so when Jesus speaks, we listen, not in fear of what did we do now or what do we have to give up this week, but rather, you know, if he said that, there must be a reason because we know he loves us. The disciples were full of questions, and to be honest, that is the job of a disciple. You have chosen to follow someone so that you can become just like them. And the only way that's going to happen is being like a two-year-old that asks why over and over and over again until they know what they need to know. Two-year-olds are trying to figure out what is true, and they're smart enough to realize that sometimes adults don't tell the truth, and so they keep asking the questions until they get the same answer every time. It's pretty obvious today's question is a setup. Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Each disciple waits with bated breath for the answer. I mean, they're pretty sure that Jesus in the top five is going to, you know, John the baptizer and Elijah and Moses and, you know, they've got their own top five but then they're waiting for Jesus to call their name. I mean, they're absolutely sure that they are worthy of the honor and then they get to do the whole nanny, nanny, boo-boo to the other disciples. So who's the greatest person in your family? How do you determine the greatest, by the way? Is it subjective or objective? Who's the greatest football, basketball, soccer, hockey, baseball player? Who's the greatest person at your work or school? How about the greatest postal worker or garbage man? You know, what happens, by the way, when you don't like who got chosen as the greatest or or someone disagrees with your choice? Jesus surprises the disciples. He doesn't even bring up Moses, Elijah, or John the baptizer. Uh, He doesn't even bring up his mom, which, let's face it, would have been a great, great thing to do. Instead, he does the ultimate children's message by grabbing a child and bringing them into the middle of the group. I don't know who the kid was. I have no idea if he understood what was happening. I, I'm pretty sure, though, by the way, that his mom was very, very proud. And and uh, if social media had been around, it would have been gone viral everywhere with the mom saying, "My kid is the best. Jesus said so." You know, Byzantine Emperor Anicophorus II said that this child actually grew up to be Saint Ignatius, who defended the early church from all sorts of heresies and died. A martyr's death because he refused to deny Jesus as Savior and Lord. Now, while it's possible that that, that the emperor was right, it's also likely that this was just backwards engineering to show what great things can happen when Jesus believes in you. So why a child? I don't think we need to go into why Jesus chose a boy or how old they were or what they were wearing or anything else. I think Jesus grabbed the nearest kid, put him in the middle of the crowd, and just said, all right, you asked, and there it is. See, children, and in particular this one child, whether it was St. Ignatius or not, are not necessarily better than anybody else. But like the child in the emperor's new clothes, they're often better at telling the truth when everybody else is afraid to. Children live with their hands open more often than they do their fists clenched. Tell a child there's a pot at the end of the rainbow filled with gold and they're off on an adventure. And children, if you say, do you know what, are more likely to respond, what, rather than now what. Children give it all they've got. They're intense. They run until they can't run anymore. They know what they want. Do they always strive for excellence? Eh, Sometimes. Do they have an agenda? And yeah, sometimes. Do they always go about whatever they're going about in the best and most proper way? Rarely. But even when they are running the wrong direction, their smile and laughter and passion are infectious. And when they get turned around and actually see what it is that they're looking for, well, you can't hold them back. And if you have ever told a two-year-old no, and it was something they really, really wanted, you know that they are not going to give up until they get what they want. Today's gospel isn't about children being the most important thing in the universe, gouging out your eyes, cutting off your hand or foot, or losing sheep or using a millstone as an anchor. What it is about is getting the church to figure out who it is and what it's here for. If you pull back to the 10,000-foot level and look at the ministry and the disciples of Jesus, you see things you might miss otherwise. John 12 says that Judas used to steal money from the ministry's treasury. Uh, James and John wanted to be the most important people in heaven, and their mom was in on it, and they were angling for the job. Thomas really struggled with faith. Peter, eh, he was always running hot or cold. The church was off to a rocky start. Everybody had their own agenda. And By the way, if you want to know how many agendas there really were, just read the first like 10 chapters of the book of Acts. Did you know that right after World War II, not only was there a baby boom, but there was a church building boom. Church construction project increased by more than 350%. New churches were popping up everywhere as suburbs splintered out from every city. For the next 25 years, the church was unstoppable. Then in the 1970s, the balloon began to deflate, and it kept deflating at a steady rate until COVID all but popped it. So why would you ask who the greatest is? And what is it that you're really asking? quick glance at the news, we'll find constant rankings of musicians, athletes, politicians, corporate leaders. You hear the term GOAT thrown around a lot these days. Sometimes the articles are hyping things because there's a new book, a new movie, a new memoir that's coming out, and they want you to be first in line. Other times it's someone who's long been forgotten and they're trying to restore you know, their place in the ring of honor to make sure people don't forget who they are. Sometimes it's just an argument for argument's sake. Somebody throws somebody out knowing that you know, it's just going to spike an argument among friends, family, and who knows who else. And other times it's so we are reminded of something or someone important, something or someone we dare not forget but often do. So why should people go to church? And why should we bring our kids to church? Other than an hour of singing and listening, what should the church be doing? Who should lead the church? Where should the money come from and where should it go? Who should be a member? Part of the problem is almost anyone can call themselves a church or a pastor these days and yeah, just go in the back. Well, you used to go in the back of Rolling Stone, but today you want to be ordained. It's not that hard. You just Google it and 50, 75 bucks, and they'll send you a certificate of ordination. And the moment churches in the 60s threw out the Bible as their inspired and errant word of God, well, there was no way of really finding out any longer who was a church and who wasn't because nobody accepts one single standard, the Bible. (sighs) There may have been so many scandals, failures in the name of God that we lost track of them. And the truth is often shown even in the churches that have always been and tried to be traditional historical churches that even they have been complicit or looked the other way during some of the greatest tragedies of our time. Some they admitted to and repented of. Others they're just hoping will go away. The church must decide what it's going to be. And for that to happen, we have to know who our leaders are because they are the ones that we are following. And if we are following them, we are going to wind up wherever it is they are going. This forces us to make sure that we not only know where they are going, but we also need to make sure it's where we want to go and where we need to go. Whenever someone or a bunch of someone's is arguing that they should be considered the greatest, there is usually a very good reason that they shouldn't be. If one has to argue or feels the need to assert their place in the history books, it means that there's enough doubt to cause not only doubt, but some chaos. If everyone considers themselves a Christian, we are really in trouble because we know that that is not possible outside of heaven. And we'll spend all of our time trying to figure out who the real Christians are, even though we know that only God can actually know such things. And that'll keep us from actually doing the things that God asked us to do. Christianity is, and always has been, at its best when it is ministering from the margins and not from the center of the page. We are a different way of life. We're a different culture. And if we have to fit into the culture and ideology of the world, in other words, to be in the middle of the page is to be you know, what everyone accepts, Well, we're going to have to sacrifice that which makes us unique. And by the way, if we're running the world, it will require the world to be molded and conformed into something that it does not want to be, and that is never good, and it always leads to an eruption. I know life is so much easier when at least on the surface everyone claims to be a Christian and all the politicians in their speeches with and may God bless America and all the movies and TV shows and music have nothing objectionable in them. But you know, that's not the way the world really is. It's what Jesus calls a whitewashed tomb. looks really good on the outside, but inside it's just full of death. Ministering from the margins is what Jesus was talking about when he said, if you want to become great, become a servant. If you want to be first, be last. It's so easy to run the world or your office or your city when you have all the power, all the money, and all the popularity. Wear blue, everybody wears blue. Drink kombucha, everybody drinks kombucha. Listen to one particular podcast, everybody listens to that podcast. Do they understand why? Do they even like it? No. They just follow you like a lost puppy. That's not leadership. That's a cult. The problem with Jesus' parables and examples is we often play contrarian because instead of just taking Jesus at the most simple level... We overthink it. Uh, We point out the kid who is nothing like the one Jesus put in the middle of the crowd and say, come on, Jesus, you can't mean that kid's the greatest. When Jesus says, love others as you love yourself, we point to somebody who we know doesn't love themselves. Love your enemies. And we say, hey, Jesus, you've never met my neighbor. Nobody can love him. When he says, I am the vine, you're the branches. If you separate from me, you will die and be able to do nothing. We run out and grab a chunk of tea leaf or maybe some plumeria and stick it in the ground. It starts to grow and we say, how about that, Jesus? See, most of us know what Jesus is trying to teach us. It really isn't rocket science. In fact, everything the church teaches should be able to be understood by a four-year-old. It should also be a model of life and love that that every four-year-old or two-year-old can learn from. The reason Jesus chose a child is because if we take our role as parents and grandparents in a community seriously, we know that these are the formative times in their life. What they learn and experience will shape them. This is why the church needs to be a place where we read the Bible and talk about all the people in there and all the stories that are in there. We desire to be a safe place to learn how to deal with the great unsolvables of life, love, death, power, time, purpose, and how we fit into all of that. We strive to be intergenerational, learning from the old and the younger generations. No filtering, just encounters at church that help us figure out how we might live with the people that live next door to us, or the girl at Starbucks, or the bus driver, or the lady that runs around IAEA struggling with mental health issues. And everyone else at church gets to figure out how to live with people who are like us, whatever that may be. We get to pray for everyone's well-being show them what it's like to be a living example of God's grace, not somebody who's perfect. Churches can be a place where we learn compassion and serving, seeing the holy in people while still acknowledging their sin. Children are an oxymoron. They are selfish and giving, curious and afraid, loving and angry, sometimes, by the way, all at the same time, Do you see why a child is the perfect example of what we have been called to be? If you open up the Bible and read it, not just listen to me or any of the other talking heads. The stories are amazing. They are messy and complicated, just like our life. Nothing in there is neat, clean, and logical. There are parts that are definitely not politically correct, and other parts that if we had a million years, we couldn't figure out but all of those stories strive to be transparent about who we are as humanity, the good, the evil, the amazing, and the tragic. And in the middle of it all is Jesus, the Savior, the one who not only comes to take away the sin of the world, but actually does take away the sin of the world through the cross and the empty tomb. When Jesus grabs that little child and puts him in the middle of the crowd and says, there you go, you want to know who the greatest was? There is promise and hope in that moment. We don't have to be geniuses or perfect We're totally holy. We can just be us, as messy and as complicated as we often are. A child doesn't start off knowing everything they need to know. It's a process of learning that involves making mistakes, going the wrong way, getting hurt, and figuring out who they can trust. And the greatest thing they can possibly learn is to bounce back when they mess up, something kids are good at, and something we desperately need to learn to be more like. It's no different with the church. No one's going to be the church for us because we corporately and individually, are the church. It's why I love hanging out with you. I think we have an awful lot to learn from one another, and I know we have a lot to learn from Jesus. I always figured once that kid got over the shock of Jesus pulling him into the middle of the crowd and figuring out that everybody was looking at him, every child knows what to do when they become the center of attention. It usually starts off with a couple of knock-knock jokes that make absolutely no sense. Then it might be stories about bears and Legos. And from there, you actually never know where it's going to go. But it will be fun. That kid will take you on an adventure you'll never forget. And that is exactly what Jesus wants for us. So on the way home, stop and get some bubbles or Legos. Look up some really bad knock-knock jokes. Let yourself be a kid for a few minutes. or, Or maybe a little longer. The adult stuff can wait for just a few minutes because I guarantee with a childlike faith, it'll be a lot easier for you to face whatever comes your way. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.